Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, when do we get back to normal? This country needs hope. It needs hope, which is sure which is certain and which is not far away. Is Boris Johnson repeating mistakes? This is not just bad luck. It's not inevitable. It follows a pattern. And can the world unite to tackle climate change this year? Politics is as much about right time, right place, and luck, to be honest, Mm -hmm. as anything else. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. We've got the Tory former cabinet minister Caroline Spellman. Hi there. Hi Caroline. We've got the Labour former minister Caroline Flint. Hello Arj. Hi Caroline. Well we have the two Carolines on to talk about their new cross-party project on how the UK can achieve net zero by 2050 but we must first deal with the inescapable issue of coronavirus and the government's response. This week has seen records broken for daily deaths with more than 1,500 fatalities reported on Wednesday. On the positive side, there are tentative signs that the lockdown is working with cases beginning to come down and the government is increasingly confident of meeting its vaccination target. But Boris Johnson is coming under some pressure to tighten the restrictions further and he's facing accusations that he was slow to act over the new variant, leading to the high death toll now a few weeks after the Christmas relaxation of rules. Let's just have a listen to Keir Starmer on this. This is not just bad luck. It's not inevitable. It follows a pattern. In the first wave of the pandemic, the government was repeatedly too slow to act. And we ended 2020 with one of the highest death tolls in Europe and the worst hit economy of major economies. In the early summer, a government report called preparing for a challenging winter, warned of the risk of a second wave, of the virus mutating, and of the NHS being overwhelmed. It set out the preparations the government needed to take. I put that report to the Prime Minister at PMQs in July. Throughout the autumn, track and trace didn't work. SAGE advised a circuit break in September, but the Prime Minister delayed for weeks before acting. We had a tiered system that didn't work. And then we had the debacle of the delayed decision to change the rules on mixing at Christmas. The most recent advice about the situation we're now in was given on the 22nd of December, but no action was taken for two weeks until Monday of this week. Mr Speaker, these are the decisions that have led us to the position we are now in. Paul, uh, you've just recovered yourself from COVID over Christmas. Glad to see you back and hear you back on the podcast. Um, what have you made of Johnson's response over the last few weeks to the new variant? Um, well, it's worth me saying, first of all, just sort of, I, I felt very lucky that I wasn't hospitalised by COVID, but I still had a, a pretty bad bout of the new variant. It's a sort of, I've tried to describe it to people, it's been like the viral equivalent of waterboarding. I mean, you know, you're, it's a whole body experience. Every single day you wake up with a 
splitting headache. You can't lift your limbs. You get back pain, stomach pain. Your oxygen levels are, are low. Mine were so low that we called the paramedics at one point who were brilliant, I've got to say, who were very sensible and said, look, you know, we've got a lot of COVID wards in, in the hospital. It might be better if you just stay at home um, just for your recovery. So, you know, just to put it in context, really, and, and, and that was over Christmas. No, We had no Christmas whatsoever. The kids ended up cooking for me and my wife and we both had it so um all the stuff about you know missing out on christmas it all kind of pales into insignificance really when you when you've gone through it and and i suppose that's the big question for boris johnson you know did he act quickly enough um on the when he found out about just how virulent the new variant was and i think the the real problem for him is yes he acted really quickly within 24 hours of getting getting the notice um and and putting London and the Southeast into tier four. And that was a really good thing because it basically meant a lot of those Christmas interactions didn't happen. But the big criticism will be, well, why didn't you do that for the whole of the country given just how virulent it was? Um, and I think that's the problem. And that's what Keir Starmer is probably referring to in PMQs. You know, why did you wait so long to do the proper lockdown? I think most people, particularly elderly people, you know, my mum who lives on her own couldn't come and see us over Christmas, but she was very, very, stoic about it waiting for a vaccine now got a vaccine i think a lot of older people actually wouldn't have minded um not interacting on christmas day now there's a lot of social isolation it's definitely worth saying that um but i think the the big when the public inquiry happens the big question will be whether or not you know that was his biggest failure in terms of a judgment call for the pm yeah um just to caroline spellman because your um party is in government at the moment just broadly speaking do you think Boris Johnson's got it right just in recent weeks and over Christmas, since that's what we're talking about. I think it's very easy to criticise. And I think there are very few governments, you know, that in the end are going to come out with a with a big medal, with the possible exception of places like New Zealand. I think the difficulty is just think, you know, for yourself, how well it would have gone down to cancel Christmas. And I think, you know, don't forget, you know, the, the, the government didn't generate a new strain of coronavirus. And it's an unfortunate coincidence that that, uh, that coincided with probably our major annual celebration of the year. Very, very difficult. And I think it's perhaps easy from a London-centric perspective to look at it a bit like the way you've described it. As far as this constituency is concerned, we'd been in tier three for so long that the step from tier three to tier four wasn't actually that dramatic. We were thinking in terms anyway of having a very small gathering, and now we are locked down, you know, more um, severely, if you like, and people have accepted it. I think if you came from tier two, I think it was perhaps a big shock to the system to go from tier two to tier four. And um, I, I, I just think this is immensely hard. Whichever party is in power would be finding this extremely difficult. And I think now is the time actually to start to focus, because we know there's a predictable end in sight when sufficient numbers of people are vaccinated. We need to be thinking really hard now about how we help the economy recover. And of course, as far as us, we're concerned as Caroline's, we want that to be a, a green recovery. But I think thoughts now really need to turn to getting ahead of the curve in terms of our competitor economies that are gonna come out of this crisis. And you know, are we gonna be fit and ready to, to get going again. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting that you touched on that. And the, the next 
big debate, uh, Caroline Spellman, is about when you can ease restrictions. The government's obviously aiming to vaccinate 88%, well, well, sorry, the first four priority groups who account for 88% of deaths. They're aiming to vaccinate those people by mid-February. Is there a case for continuing restrictions once those people are vaccinated? At what point do we go, okay, let's lift, lift the restrictions, do you think? I think most people up here in the Midlands in tier three are expecting it to continue a bit longer than mid-February. Um, there's a pragmatism. As I say, we've been in tier three for so long that you know people are attuned really to what's required it, it, uh, under those restrictions. I think probably need to think a bit further than that. I mean, the critical thing is uh, at what point are sufficient numbers of people vaccinated for it to be safe to lift those restrictions? To give you an idea, I'm 62. I'm not due to receive my vaccination until April. You know, any of your listeners can go on to a website which will estimate when you should receive your vaccination by. Well, if somebody that, like me, is, you know, still of working age is not yet going to receive the vaccine till mid-April, then it indicates to me it's going to take a little bit longer for it to be safe to lift those restrictions. I would, I would say that, you know, um, look, you hope for the best, but you've got to prepare for the worst. And uh, I would say we're talking about the back end of this year uh, until the vaccination programme is probably fully done. And I think, you know, the other thing about the messaging, Arj, is that, you know, obviously the vaccinations are a game changer and it's amazing to have that positive news before Christmas and since about the Pfizer vaccine and now the other vaccine coming on, on, on board. And I know just, you know, from Doncaster, you know, my, my husband's a counsellor, so I get a little bit of information what's going on there. I mean, sort of the step up in terms of our vaccination centres. I know of people, friends, older friends, who've already had their second vaccine. Um, and it's, and they're really getting through it. And now in somewhere like Doncaster, interesting, and this will be, interesting how this plays out we've actually probably got a higher cohort of people in the older age group and certainly in the 50s to 60s where other communities could have a dis, you know a, a disproportionately larger number of younger people under 35 so again the sort of uh, the rollout will vary compared depending on the demographics of different areas but i the thing that people have to understand is that vaccinations are great but they aren't in themselves at this stage going to stop us passing on infection and, and and there's still more work to be done on the efficacy of the vaccination in terms of first of all not you might be vaccinated but you still could be in danger of passing on uh, the virus um i think you know i think absolutely agree with caroline on on the tier three stuff we feel like we've been in the north like this for a long time i think we had a window in the summer my daughter <laughs> in london has been living on her own this last year I mean, she came up for a week in the summer and we were fortunate enough to be able to organise social distancing within our home. But that was like one little moment, you know. Um, it hasn't really changed for us. And I think probably speaking to friends in London, I got the sense, and this is just anecdotal, but I got the sense that in London during the summer in particular, there was a sense that people, I wouldn't say breaking the rules, but pushing the boundaries. You know, they were going to swimming pools. Um, you know, they were doing much more social interaction in the sort of, you know, um, restaurants and cafes and bars, even if it was outside, sort of outside, sort of inside thing going on. And I have to say the conversations with my friends on Zoom in the north of England was we couldn't quite understand yeah. why London hadn't gone into lockdown yeah. earlier, given that other cities in the north had been affected 
Manchester, Birmingham, elsewhere. Um, and I, we, we, were, we had lots of conversations about what's going on in London? What are they doing that's so great that we're not doing everywhere else? And actually, I don't know. They'll, I think all, we won't know a lot of this until an inquiry happens yeah, to better understand really what's gone on. Yeah, Caroline Flint, I've asked uh, Caroline Spellman about her party leader. So I've got to ask you about Keir Starmer and how you think he's done with his response to the pandemic, which has dominated politics over the last year, and particularly how it's going down with voters in Don Valley. I've heard some suggestions uh, from people in the Conservative Party that the kind of Captain Hindsight criticism of Keir Starmer is, is, has, has a fair hearing among voters in the so-called Red Wall in places like Doncaster. Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're quite good at these little neat titles and things. And, and I think it keeps everyone in the Westminster bubble happy about this. And Labour will think of something to call Boris Johnson as well. I mean, look, I think the um, during this pandemic, and I think certainly for you know my friends and family here in Doncaster and other people I know, and I'm sure elsewhere, it's the sort of, it's, a, it's a national emergency where, quite frankly, People don't want to have a load of partisan politics going on. Absolutely. They expect everybody to step up. Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be scrutiny and holding government to account. Um, and to be honest, it's not necessarily red on blue because within the Conservatives, Caroline, I would say, yeah. um, obviously there have been different points of view about, you know, the restrictions. Some of the Conservatives have thought the Prime Minister has gone way too far in terms of restrictions, although they've been a bit quieter since the death tolls have gone up. Um, so I think um, Keir Starmer has probably, um, you know, if played, that's not, I don't really like that choice of phrase, has chosen his stance wisely, which is to basically um, recognise that this is a national emergency. People don't want silly politics. And for the most part, he's sensibly, where particularly it's backed up by the scientific evidence, has leaned into the government and what they've been saying. There have been occasions where actually, to be fair, Keir has said we should go into lockdown earlier. Now, whether, you know, I don't know, whether that was based on judgment or luck, because that's a lot of this in politics, making the right call at the right time and then hoping you're going to be right. Um, that has sort of followed through when he was talking about a, a national lockdown before Christmas, despite quite a lot of heavy opposition to that point of view, he was sort of proved right. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think the public, most of them not involved in this, are really interested in, in point scoring about who's right. They just want to be safe. They just want to find yeah, some way to get on with their lives. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I think he's played it pretty much right on all of this. And let's be the other side of it is nobody's really interested in anything else. Dare I say it, the Labour Party's got to say at the moment, because this is the biggest issue in town. Yeah, definitely. I think, Arch, I think there's a couple of really interesting things that emerge. So friends of mine who live in other European countries are quite shocked by why so many of our fellow countrymen don't follow rules. You know, uh, it's right. much, much, it's much stricter. There's more obedience, if you like, in places like France and Germany. And I think we have to look a little bit into our nation's soul when we sort of unscramble all this. Of course, we are naturally quite libertarian as a culture, and we don't take very kindly about being told what to do. And I think that's a very important factor when we look back. You know, some people say, well, why didn't we lock down in September? Because that's what scientists said would have helped keep a lid on the infection. Well, can you imagine it? 
the kids have been out of school for months and months and months. It's a natural time for kids to start the academic year. Infection rate was low. I think it would have been very difficult to align the public will. to. It, it may have been the right thing to do with hindsight, but I mean, we have to look at who we are and what our culture is like to understand these decisions better, I think. Can I just no, go put, on. In there, put in there? I don't, I don't disagree, Caroline. My, I, have, I do have a concern, though, that, you know, most people are, have been amazing. Yeah. They have, yeah. You know, they have had their whole lives turned up, up, upside down yeah, in terms of social relationships and work. Yeah. And, and they have basically abided by the rules. Absolutely. And maybe sometimes, I mean, I, I was having a conversation with someone this morning. The American view of what's going on here is that, we're all out having a party basically all of the time and, and New Year's Eve hasn't stopped yet, you know. I mean, but there's a danger that if the constant messaging is just too much about the people who are breaking the rules, yes. some yeah. might yeah. feel, well, if yeah. they're breaking the rules, why can't I? But also you don't actually promote the example of the people who really no. are no. doing yeah. the best they can. I mean, friends of mine yeah. who have not seen to have a direct conversation, their loved ones in care homes for the best part of a year. Yes, yeah, I mean, different. other kids, you know, who've not seen grandparents, people have really changed, you know, lots of things. So I think, you know, I think there's a sort of behavioral psychology thing here that the experts will give us information about is what tactic works best. The sort of like, beware, stop breaking the rules or something that maybe balances that out with let's talk more and beef up the people who actually are abiding by the rules and what amazing contribution they've played to all our yeah. safety. <laughs> and, and, and does, does the government actually help on this? I mean, we've obviously had the Dominic Cummings uh, fiasco. Uh, latest controversy this week, obviously less serious, but Boris Johnson travelling seven miles to cycle around the Olympic Park and then the government responding by saying, well, people can judge for themselves what constitutes local exercise. Does this kind of behaviour no, undermine the message? I think the media have been deeply unhelpful with this sort of finger pointing exercise, although it makes great cartoons and it sells newspapers. That isn't so much the issue. I agree with Caroline that I think it's always the, you know, the majority is law abiding. There's almost like what you'd say a blitz spirit. Let's make this work. Let's reach out to our neighbours. Let's think who's going to be very vulnerable. What can I do to help? That's the majority. But there's definitely has been a, a difficulty with some reluctance in a segment of society to abide by the rules. To this day, you know, people do try and go into supermarkets without wearing masks. I think, I think, you know, the public are getting better at self-policing. Little old ladies turn around and say, you know, don't you stand that close to me in the queue, you know, which, you know, perhaps more assertive than they would ordinarily be. But the has the has the definitely and social media has fueled this and the media coverage of breaching the rules has, I agree with Caroline, given more credence to it. And there's, there's, there's definitely been an issue with a, a group that doesn't take it seriously. There has been an issue. How do, you think, how do you think you got it, Paul, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I'm pretty sure we got it from our teenage son because the new variant was rife in his sixth form. And we're not the only ones, the only parents have got it. Lots of parents, teenagers we know from his school have got it. Um, some of them have got... Um, pretty um uh, pretty vulnerable so you know it shows how i mean i was fit and healthy and i was wiped out by it. if i can't imagine what it's like yeah. if you've got a condition you know but i think 
I think you I think you both raised a really important point actually, which is that um, the public on the whole have been the real heroes in all this. And um, I think the interesting thing about the Cummings incident was yes, the public thought, oh, well, that's one law for them, one law for us. And then they kind of rolled their eyes, but they rolled their eyes and continued to, to, to meet the rules. In other words, the public weren't influenced by things. They just thought, well, that, that's ridiculous. And I think the same in a lesser degree to the, to the stuff about Boris being on his bike. I mean, people just roll their eyes and say, well, OK, but, you know, it's not a big deal, partly because it's outdoors, let's be honest. And, I, and there's a lot of talk about them increasing the restrictions. And I think Keir Starmer should be wary of really pushing that because at the moment, I can't see many more restrictions that could go mm. even further. And this idea that how you should stop two women from walking together for exercise when maybe one of them has been isolated for a long time and hasn't seen that friend for a long time. It's outdoors. What's the problem? Yeah. I, I I can't really see the problem with that. And the, the one thing I think, as Caroline mentioned, actually, care homes, that they may well have to sort of restrict again visits to care homes because I think that is the clear danger. And, and I think it's really, really tough people who have not seen a relative but i think those relatives may well understand it if it's for a four weeks or whatever so i think overall the public have been absolutely brilliant and we shouldn't forget too that you know the vaccine program is well beating we can use that phrase uh, finally for something we're doing and that, you know only yesterday i think it jumped by 33 percent the number of people vaccinated in one day yeah. so that we may well get to that target and we've got eight hundred thousand pcr tests a day capacity now um yeah. You know, so oh, there's some good news is worth remembering in all of this, I think. But um, yeah, and, and overall, I think the public are the heroes. Just as one final example, I didn't realise until I was ill that my whole street here, where I live in West London, um, has a, a sort of WhatsApp group for people who are self-isolating. Yeah. And it's run by um, a German guy who lives a few doors down. And he uh, he he came to our house and said if there's anything you need let us know and we said actually we we need some washing up liquid and uh and he arrived literally within an hour with a massive german style bottle of liquid washing up liquid and, german, and you think, well there you go bottle a german style yeah. bottle what does that mean it was, it, it was, it was enormous. Oh. <laughs> large and sustainable i think actually <laughs> I, I, i'm really hoping because i this whole covid episode came off the back of or it 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 trans it covered the period of post you know brexit when communities were really divided it was desperately difficult you know people who perfectly got on perfectly well for years and years were falling out and i think one of the things about covid one of the plus sides is that the community has um rediscovered itself and rallied round itself we need to keep that i think the other interesting thing about covid it's accelerated various things that were already happening in our society and it, we're not going to go back quite like we were you know the whole huge transition to working from home that is now going forward going to be much more prominent that has implications for commuting for public transport for the preeminence of london all of those sorts of things and i, I think it's going to be very interesting what the legacy ultimately becomes because certain things will not go back as they were yeah let, let's move on because as mentioned the two carolines are on the show to talk about their new roles co-chairing the onward think tanks getting to net zero program 
and its first report last week revealed that the drive towards net zero will be deeply political with less prosperous areas most reliant on the industries that emit a lot of carbon. The areas that make up the so-called red wall that swung from Labour to the Tories in 2019 and gave Boris Johnson his 80-seat majority are likely to suffer the most disruption, with 43% of workers in high-emitting industries compared to an average of 37% in the rest of the country. The Prime Minister says he's increasingly keen on the green agenda, and with statistics like that, it's easy to understand why. Let's have a listen to him. I, I personally, I'm uh, becoming more and more obsessed with uh, with what we can do because, for me, to get back to the point I was making to Tom Tugendhat about bouncing back from COVID, <coughs> the green agenda, uh, the whole green industrial revolution, is not just a load of green nonsense as people uh, sometimes seem to suggest. Extra costs for for businesses and for for families. If you do it right, it's the opportunity to to generate hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, for this country. Uh, and we, we discussed that uh, earlier. Uh, you, you said to me your, your, your first question was, what about a, a charter for jobs? This is a charter for jobs. Uh, literally hundreds of thousands of, uh, of jobs in, in wind technology, in batteries, uh, in, in low-carbon uh, campaigns of all kinds. And so, I, so in, in getting to net zero by 2050, which is the number one objective of of COP and, and getting uh, the world to, to agree to that, uh, we have the opportunity to, to, to turbocharge our, our economy at the same time and uh, to, to drive jobs of, of all kinds. Uh, Caroline Flint, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, I've just talked about the impact there on the Red Wall, which your report highlighted. How does the government ensure that these areas aren't left behind by any drive to net zero by 2050? Well, first, the reason why Carol and I are, are co-chairing this group and are interested in it, because obviously Caroline is, you know, represented in the Midlands for many years and myself up here in South Yorkshire. Um, and what we're, we're, let's be very clear about something here. We have to get to net zero. We have to make this transition and this transformation about, you know, how we work and how we live. But there are some hard questions that need to be asked and some heavy lifting when it comes to the sort of policies that we need to create. And, you know, and that's about making sure that and I think I, I carry this forward from my time as Shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change is that becoming green shouldn't be something just the well off and the middle classes should be able to enjoy or be the champions for. We've got to have policies that take the country with us. And clearly there are lots of sectors in industry that are high emitters. I mean, there's the obvious ones and there's not the, the not so obvious ones, aviation, car industry, so forth. But if you look even in forestry and fishing, they are high emitters um, in the same way as in huge sections of manufacturing. Now, we don't want to end <laughs> fishing or forestry and we don't want to end manufacturing, but we need to address how we're going to get there. And many of these jobs, many of these jobs are in communities like Doncaster and elsewhere. And if you compare the statistics of the jobs to be affected in, you know, my part of the world, it's far greater than it would be in London, where many jobs are, you know, like this, basically. They're able to work like this. So the level of emissions they can control in a way, or they aren't high emitters anyway. And um, yes, there is a political edge to this, of course. But you can't talk about levelling up or rebalancing the economy if huge I was going to say pockets, but I would say, you know, you know, landscapes within that economy 
Um, okay. are potentially, if we don't give them the thought to this exercise now in some real detail, will be left behind. And, and look, as we know, if people feel they're left behind, they don't feel they're part of the national endeavour, then they feel very cynical about politics, they feel cynical about their lives, and, and they should be part as much about this um, green revolution as anyone else and see as something that offers change, yes, and job losses in areas, some, certainly, but opportunities too, and that's what we're working towards. And whoever wants to answer this, do, do you think people, voters in, in areas like, like those you described, are kind of engaged with this agenda? How can they be convinced to, to come on board with it? And how can they yeah. be convinced, given, their, given the industries that they're in, that it actually won't work against them? I think they are engaged with the need to tackle climate change because um, I think David Attenborough, amongst others, has done a fantastic job showing us just how devastating are the consequences both for humans, but for all species, if we don't address uh, uh, climate change. He, you know, I think that's largely accepted, but I suspect that you know, our constituents perhaps have not made the connection to what this means in practice for them. You know, we, we can all do our bit in terms of you know, not using plastic or you know, you know, using a, a car less, using public transport more, but actually, to get to net zero, this is what our report really shows, it requires huge shifts. And where I used to represent here in the West Midlands, we're big car makers. You can't walk down the street without somebody you know, patting the bonnet of your car in the car park and telling you that they may make cars like that. There's a great pride in that, but it is one of the big emitting industries. So the question is, how do we actually achieve the whole scale transformation of that industry to let's say electric cars and our report really looks at how do you need to help people change their skills so that they have sustainable jobs in a net zero carbon economy. Another really good illustration that I heard Philip Hammond use yesterday is to get to net zero, you have to tackle the carbon that we use in our homes. So there are 25 million domestic dwellings in the United Kingdom. And to get to net zero, it's estimated it would cost £10,000 per dwelling. Mm -hmm. But the average level of savings that people have in one domestic dwelling is about £1,000. So there's a big gap there. And I think that what this report does, it, it shines a light on the opportunities that exist. To adapt all those homes, you're going to need a lot of people making the adaptation to those properties if we're going to meet net zero. So whilst there are huge challenges for the big emitting industries, there are also big opportunities if we can help them transform and reskill their workforce. Um, and Caroline Spellman, you uh, negotiated the UK's Sustainable Development Goals as Environment Secretary in, in 2012. Um, how diffi difficult is it to get these kind of international agreements and, and what should the UK be aiming for with the COP26 summit in Glasgow this year? So, I, so it, it, I actually negotiated not just SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, but the first United Nations agreement after the collapse in the climate change talks at Copenhagen, when people said there's never going to be another United Nations agreement ever again. Well, how wrong they were. We got agreement on the need to halt the loss of species. And then I, I certainly helped scour the planet for the best idea going forward out of the summit that took place in Rio. And it was actually the Colombians who came up with the idea of sustainable 
development goals that have now been fully embraced. So I think we should despair of um, willingness to make important changes, especially now that the US has elected a president who actually embraces the need to tackle climate change. Because frankly, by the time you put America, Europe, and Japan together, you've got more than 50% of the world's GDP. People, these are people who signed up to tackle this problem. So you know, let's be optimistic here that there is a will to do it. But then I think at the COP next year, the UK government has got to come up with something really practical that will bring about change. And I would suggest that one of the things that we could look at is tackling the whole problem of disguised imports of carbon emitting products. So it, it, you really don't solve climate change if you just import products from China that have been produced with very high carbon emissions from coal-fired industries. So we need to get to grips with that and actually deal with taxing carbon on imports or reporting it accurately. And I think if we did that, um, we'd find that China, which tends to do things at scale, would become one of the big innovators to help reduce its own carbon emissions. And can you give some examples of the kind of products you're talking about there, just for, for the average listener? Well, um, the UK off, offshores, we quite often offshore production um, from the UK to places like China because it's cheaper to produce it there and it's subject to less regulation. And then we re-import it. But actually then in terms of our consumer purchasing power, we haven't actually reduced from a global perspective our carbon consumption. Yeah, makes sense. Paul, uh, just on COP26, Paul, Alok Sharma has been uh, moved out of his business secretary job to be put in permanent charge of organising COP26. A, a good choice, do you think? Well, I think it's, it's certainly a good decision to give him the job exclusively because yeah. he can then focus on it. And it's true that other people those jobs and have held their ministerial posts and have been okay i mean don't forget there was one young up-and-coming rising german star young environment minister who was called angela merkel who oversaw cop in 1995 believe it or not um and didn't do her any harm but um I mean, Sharma, the interesting thing about him is he's very well liked. There's no question about that. I mean, he's incredibly frustrating for journalists like me and you, Arj, because he just yeah. doesn't answer questions. But he's not going to need that skill set. The skill set he's really going to need um, in this round uh, is is not getting the world to all agree on the same thing. It's not going to be like Paris. That, that agreement's happened. What he's going to have to do is try and get each country to try and come up with their own commitment for getting to net zero in 2050, or even more importantly, following on from Paris, how to update their plans, sort of how, how to get there. And um, they're all due to update their plans in 2025. And this is going to be a bit faster than that. Um, and it's a tough ask. I mean, but Britain, for example, I think we excluded Australia and Brazil um, last December from a UN summit because they didn't come up with concrete proposals. Both countries are a bit annoyed by that, but it shows that we're, we mean business. And I think if he can somehow cajole and persuade individual countries to commit to net zero, um, that's going to be it's a hell of a task. Um, yes. but, but, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's well worth trying for. The interesting thing is just... 
the, the fact that he's so close to Boris Johnson, I think it really helps because he's seen as having Boris Johnson's ear. Boris Johnson, let's not forget, at the end of the day, is a global figure, you know, um, with the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, we still uh, have real clout on G7 this year, etc. So Britain does have a global role. And I think, as Caroline was saying, I mean, don't forget, a few countries can make a huge difference. The fact that China, for example, is now finally committed to net zero by 2060, it's not 2050, but 2060 is a massive increase. Mm. The fact yep. that the EU has finally followed Britain in going for a, a net zero target, um, again, a huge, huge step forward. So there's lots to be cheerful about. The question is just how much Sharma can pin down individual countries by the end of the year. I think Biden will have a huge, huge influence on that, but so will China. I, I, mean, I agree with everything Paul's um, said there. I think... Um... You know, I think there's certain tasks that come along. You really need a focus of an individual who's who's very tapped into the government, but has got free reign to get on with that job without being hindered by other things. I think yeah. when, you know, we saw, you know, a different thing, but we've seen that with, you know, Tessa Jal and the Olympics and having that focus in on something to help deliver and not only um, internationally, but also domestically as well with all the partners as well. It's about the sort of signals that you really value something. And that's the other thing about going into negotiations. You know, do all the other people that you're working with think that this is a real priority? And I think it's the symbolism as much as just the practicality of this that is so important. And don't forget, he, he, uh, he, um, Sharma asked to be released from his role to do, focus on this. And that was the right decision. If, if you're going to be asked to deliver a successful conference of all these countries, you've got an, an enormous amount of diplomacy behind the scenes. I was sent forth to broker a deal between China and Brazil on the halting the loss of species, because obviously the Brazilians are sitting on enormous amounts of biodiversity in the Amazon forests and beyond. And, you know, countries like China want access to the, the, the information, the genetic diversity of places like that. So trying to bring those two people together, two countries together, took a huge amount of work. And he'll have lots of bilateral meetings that he really, really needs to focus on. And it has to be someone who completely buys into the importance of doing this. So I think he made the right call. And the fact it was his choice, he wasn't told to drop one job and focus on this. I think that's all important. I, I'm quite interested about how Brexit and also even and the pandemic as well, you know, there's lots of discussion about what impact it's had on people's sense oh, of politics and democracy. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, you know, without being naive about this, um, the public appetite for some of the big issues for there to be more cross-party support on the basic foundations. Um, and and I and I, in a weird way, you know, um, it might be that come uh, the summit later this year, that given the whole world has gone through the pandemic, that leaders around the world, you know, I'm not saying, you know, we've got to look the devils in the detail, but there might be more of a, a, a sort of mindset and a, an emotional engagement mm -hmm. to try to offer something that's more hopeful about the future. Um, and, and, you know, politics is as much about right time, right place and luck, to be honest, mm -hmm. as anything else. And, and maybe that will bode well for it because we have had a few of these things where there's been a lot of hoo-ha and then it's not much come out of it. And maybe that, and I'm hopeful that would change. And in other areas as well, you know, where people want to sort of see some big policies that cannot rely on the jerky nature of election cycles, 
that actually, you know, we can get some sort of political consensus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's so important. Right, on that note, we must move on. It's time for the quiz. Oh, God. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, and in honour of Donald Trump, this week's quiz is all about impeachment. Not <laughs> um, <Got> a <sister. laughs> So if you know the answer, just uh, shout it and I'll give you a point if it's correct. Um, Donald Trump was this week impeached by the US House of Representatives but for a second time. But what was the charge? Incitement to, to something. Yeah. Incitement to um, um, undermine the Constitution or something like that. Caroline Spellman, you said something there? Inciting insurrection. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's correct. There's a point to Caroline Spellman. <laughs> Question number two. Uh, two other US presidents have been impeached by the House. Who are they? Nixon and Clinton. I'll give you a point for Clinton, but not Nixon, because he quit before he was impeached. Oh. oh. Was it a lot? Is it someone made? Many, many years beforehand. Yeah, um, it's quite obscure, to be fair. If you don't know it, you might not know it. Andrew Jackson. <laughs> Ooh, Grover Cleveland or someone. I don't know. Uh, it was Andrew Johnson. I don't know if you, that's who you ah, meant, Caroline. Blake. Very good. Well, of course I meant that. Oh, I shouldn't give her that. <laughs> Andrew no, I'll, Johnson, of course. I'll give, I'll give you one point for Bill Clinton um, for lying under oath and obstruction of justice over the Monica Lewinsky affair. Uh, final question. It's a tie between the two Carolines at the moment, so uh, <laughs> this is the decider, or Paul can make it a three-way draw. Uh, in the UK, Boris Johnson faced a motion that went nowhere, calling for his impeachment in 2019 over plans to force through a no-deal Brexit. But in years gone by, Johnson himself called for the impeachment of which... Tony British... Blair! Yes, well done, Paul. And every, it's a draw. Everyone's happy. Congratulations to everyone. Well done. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, we'll just leave you with the Fisheries Minister Victoria Prentice on what the Brexit deal meant for her job. I suppose my question is, did your draw drop as well when you saw this uh, uh, agreement that had been delivered in fisheries, when really this is, it was such an iconic subject? No, the agreement came when we were all very busy on Christmas Eve, in, in my case, organising the, the local nativity trail. We'd been waiting and waiting. It looked like it was coming for, for probably four days before it actually arrived. I, for one, had gone through, as I'm sure members of this committee had, a gamut of emotions over those um, four days, as, as many of us have, truthfully, for the last four and a half years.